Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Beyond Texas. We need to pick up the trail of Frank Abagnale, as the FBI was no doubt trying to do, and figure out where he's headed next. Frank knew that someone was on his tail. He didn't know who, but he knew it was time to retire from Pan Am, so to speak, and lay low for a while. So he decided Atlanta was a good choice. He found an inviting adults-only complex there, one where he could enjoy partying with young professionals like himself. He had to be 21 to live there, and they would not allow children. Only problem, you see, was that Frank was only 18 years old. Yes, astonishing, isn't it? He had had his incredible Pan Am pilot's career all as a teenager. But he played a role. You act an age. And he was Italian, and because of that, he looked older than he was. So, at the complex, he just put six months' rent cash on the table and told them he was a doctor, avoiding the age question altogether that way. Dr. Williams, from Los Angeles, good to meet you. The woman asked him what kind of doctor he was, and he said, thinking quickly, a pediatrician. He figured that way in an apartment complex with no kids, people wouldn't be seeking his advice. They wouldn't ask too many questions. He further explained that he was taking a break from medicine for a while. He was going to do some research, maybe write a book. So all was well in his new single professional doctor life, at least for a while. He partied in the complex and enjoyed himself with the ladies. But one day there was a knock on the door. And a man was standing there who said politely, Dr. Williams, I'm Dr. Willis Granger, chief of pediatrics at the local hospital here. Just moved in downstairs. I'm your neighbor. Heard you were a pediatrician from the office over here. And I thought I'd introduce myself to my colleague. Well, this was a frightening development. Frank had to have him come in, of course. He asked where he had gone to med school. And Frank said, Columbia. He asked where he had done his internship, and Frank named the only hospital he could think of at the moment, one in L.A., Harbor Children's Hospital, he said. Dr. Granger seemed satisfied, although he wasn't really interrogating him. He was just having a conversation. So Dr. Granger invited him to come out to have lunch with him at the hospital sometime, said he'd show him around. Well, it turned out Granger took a liking to Frank and hung out with him quite a bit in the complex. But he had one saving grace, as Frank put it. He didn't like to talk shop. He preferred to talk about women and golf and such. But Frank decided that, nonetheless, for the sake of cover, he needed to bone up on medical language. So he started hitting the Atlanta Library and reading books by pediatricians and pediatric medical journals. I find it striking that the con man was a studious library nerd, and many actual college students I have known never even managed to make it to the campus library, conveniently located for them. Frank soon felt well enough versed in the basics of pediatrics that he was certain he could carry on a casual conversation that would not raise alarms. He was ready for lunch. So he called up Dr. Granger and arranged it. They had a good visit. He told Granger he was on a leave of absence from California, taking a break, really, maybe doing some research. Granger offered him the run of the hospital library any time he wanted to use it, day or night. 
So, Frank spent a lot of time there, which increased his credibility with the doctors in the hospital who believed that it was smart of him to keep up with the latest research, even though he was taking a break. One day, the department director called Frank in and said, I have a favor to ask of you, Dr. Williams. We have a sudden vacancy for the position of uh, a resident to oversee our interns on the midnight to eight shift. We're kind of in a bind because it's just very difficult to find doctors here in Atlanta. There's a great shortage. I'd like to ask you if you could just be here midnight to eight for 10 days to oversee to oversee these interns. Well, Frank tried to slip out of it. He said, I don't have a license to practice in Georgia. The director said, oh, you don't need one. You won't be actually practicing medicine. You'll just be overseeing those who do. Besides, for what I need you, I can get an emergency license approval by having you meet with five doctors, a little board that we can put together, and they can quickly certify you. We can do that tomorrow morning. How about it? Well, it freaked Frank out, but it also appealed to him in terms of the challenge. Could he do this? Could he pull this off? So he said he would meet with them, and he prayed that he could answer their questions. Well, as it turned out, professional courtesy ruled the day. They just took his word for his degree and experience and talked about women in golf, etc. He was in, and well-paid. Frank figured the role he'd have to play would be similar to that of Alan Alda on MASH. He needed to be a happy-go-lucky jokester who couldn't care less about rules and absolutes. His persona would cover his weaknesses. He managed the interns by letting them practice medicine without interference or criticism. He just needed to be present. That's all they asked him to do. They didn't ask him to practice medicine or actually do any procedures. His job was to walk around and look at charts as if he understood them. Again, he learned quickly that he needed to put himself on a steady program of mastering the medical language. He needed fluency. So he got himself a pocket dictionary of medical terms, and when he'd hear a word he didn't know, he'd slip off upstairs to an empty floor, one that was under construction, and he would hide in the linen closet and learn the terms. He was often up there, 20 minutes at a time, studying that dictionary. His interns loved him because he let them practice medicine. If there were ever a doubt about how to proceed with a patient, he'd ask three of them what should be done. He'd say, what would you do? And what would you do? And what would you do? And then he would go with the majority opinion. But he never had a true emergency, thank God. Never risked a child's life because he was overseeing the interns and not doing any procedures himself. But he did naturally worry the day that a time would come when he would be the reason for a tragedy. After 11 months of running the con and worrying that one day one of the doctors or administrators would go to the trouble to check on his credentials, he was happy when the director said that they had finally found a replacement and he could go back to being a lazy bum at the apartment complex. He was relieved. Though he'd miss his $125 a day salary, he also decided that he'd been there long enough. It was time to move on. So he went to New Orleans. Well, it was there that he began his third career. He was at a party, 
and one of his acquaintances there, a woman whom he'd told he was a lawyer, introduced him to a real lawyer and said, you two should get along. You're both lawyers. The lawyer he was introduced to worked for the attorney general, and they were in need of additional staff. And he asked Frank, where'd you go to law school? So Frank said reflexively, uh, Harvard. I guess if you're going to lie about where you go to school, you might as well go to the best. So the guy asked, how'd you do at Harvard? And Frank said, all right, I guess, 3.8 GPA. Then his new friend said, we'd love to have you work for us if you'd be interested. Frank said, well, I guess I'd need to pass the bar here in Louisiana. I'm not licensed to practice here. And the AG office attorney said, no problem. You take your Harvard Law transcripts down there to the examiner's office, and you're automatically accepted for taking the bar. So... Frank couldn't resist the challenge. He ordered a law school catalog from Harvard. Then, using his phenomenal forging skills, he created a transcript using the logos on the catalog and the course titles. He ran it through a photocopy machine, and the result was spectacular. It looked like a real photocopy of a transcript. He turned it into the examiner's office, and he was set for the exam. His friend loaned him law books, and he studied like crazy. His friend even tutored him. Louisiana, you see, is a tough bar to pass because it still has elements of Napoleonic law that doesn't exist in any other state. So in many cases, it's one of the toughest bars to pass. Frank failed the first time he took it, but he took it again in six weeks. He failed again. He took it again in another six weeks, and he passed. He got his beautiful certificate in the mail saying he was a lawyer. Licensed to practice law, Frank was giddy. He had never even finished high school or set a foot on a college campus, and now he was officially a lawyer. But in fairness to the exam, I think Frank had already proved his approach to these things was sound. Focus on the language. Seek fluency in the language. That's a big part of apparent legitimacy. It was George Bernard Shaw who said that every profession is a conspiracy against the layman. And the conspiracy is protected by the erudite language. Frank understood that, and he always endeavored to crack the codes that were embedded in the language. So he went to work in the AG office and had a great time doing research and writing briefs and helping to construct powerful evidence-based arguments. All was well until one day another Harvard grad joined the team. Frank thought he'd just stay away from him. But he said he didn't realize how these Harvard guys like to stick together like a great fraternity. This Harvard guy would try to talk to him about professors and courses, and of course Frank knew nothing about any of it. He soon realized that he had aroused suspicion, and this Harvard man seemed to be building a case against him as a fraud. Frank decided it was time to move on. He collected his last paycheck and headed west. Out west while in Utah, he noticed an ad for summer sociology instructors that were needed at Brigham Young University. He went to talk to the head of the department who told him that he needed a Ph.D. in sociology to teach these courses. Frank told him that he had a Ph.D. from Columbia and had taught for a brief while at the City College of New York before leaving voluntarily to uh, take a pilot's position with TWA. He was now on furlough for six months for an inner ear issue, but expected to return to TWA in a while. The department head was impressed and said, well, just give us your transcripts and two letters of recommendation, 
and I think that we can hire you. Frank Adams, he was now Adams, ordered the course catalog from Columbia and made himself a doctoral transcript, complete with dissertation topic, The Sociological Impacts of Aviation on Rural Populations of North America. He had a 3.7 GPA, quite respectable. Two letters of recommendation were forged on CCNY letterhead, which he got from the City College of New York by sending a letter asking for information on something or other. He copied the letterhead and forged everything, making them more authentic-looking by photocopying them. That always tended to soften the rough edges of his forgeries, photocopies. So he taught two summer classes at Brigham Young. He had about 70 students per class. And as a college professor myself, I suppose I'm a little offended, but not surprised, that he said the college teaching con was the easiest of all. He only had to stay a chapter ahead of the students, and his credibility was never in doubt. Then he could fill in with airline stories and keep them wild with his real-world life. I would imagine that he made for a fascinating sociology professor, given all that he knew about human nature through his myriad of cons. Well, after that summer, he kept thinking about the big score, the big con. His problem in working for Pan Am, you see, is that he was a lone wolf. To be a credible pilot, a truly credible pilot, he needed a cast of actors to empower the believability of his role. He needed perhaps other pilots or at least stewardesses as a posse. And here was the great conundrum. How could he get a cast or a group of stewardesses who would be a part of the con but would be unaware that they were part of the con? How could he get women who believed they worked for Pan Am but who were really working for him? yet were thoroughly ignorant of the con they were a part of. That was the challenge, the puzzle he had to solve if he was going to pull off the greatest con of all. And he does solve it. Next week, I'll tell you how. That's it for this week's Beyond Texas. I'm W.F. Strong, your host and storyteller. You can reach me anytime at wfstrongpodcast at gmail.com. Until next week. And always remember, the most powerful force in the world are good stories well told. <music>